Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Through the movies with a vengeance. Today, gifted Chris Evans and a child prodigy in Mark Webb's movie about math aftermath and the problem with division. We sum it all up. Also, Houston, we have a problem. Nick Broomfield gets so emotional in new Whitney doco, Can I Be Me? And speaking of things that were hugely popular in the 80s, this week's film club is with Nail and I. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, listener. In your ear today, we have David Jenkins. Hi, hi. Hi, and a big hello and welcome back uh, to Simran Hans. How are you, Simran? Hello. Uh, I'm good. Good. Very well. You two have just been off on an excursion, what I'd like to call a dock holiday, if you will, uh, to Sheffield. Indeed, yes. We went to the Sheffield Dock Fest, and uh, I think we're going to sort of discuss our findings a little later in, you the, bet we are. in the podcast. Right. And uh, Simran, you've just been finishing off half of your reviews for this Sunday's Observer film. That's true. Which I've done, done two out of five. Well, two. funnily enough, I've done the two films that we're going to talk about today. Brilliant. So there we go. Gifted and Whitney and Can Whitney. I Be Me. Uh, many thanks to everyone who's written in. We've got loads of comments about this week's film club, which is, of course, With Nail and I. Here's Chris B, though, who's got a rather more generic point about your cinematic experience being ruined by the selfish, ignorant, bewildering behaviour of others. He cites the example of a lady that he works with who had her visit to the cinema ruined by parents allowing their child to cycle around the front of the big screen on a tricycle. That's quite extraordinary, isn't it? It's outrageous. That's happened to me as well before. But it wasn't... It wasn't what, a, on a it tricycle? Was, no, it, I think it was a scooter. Yeah, the sort of two-wheel yeah, versions. Rather than the one with the motor in um, I had a friend once who told me a story about how he went to see the film Black Swan on a lunch break and he was the only one in the cinema until a woman decided to sit next to him and eat spare ribs. That's an extraordinary story. That's quite amazing, isn't it? And, and I can't watch Black Swan without thinking of spare ribs now. Right. So, Okay. Well, if you've had a cinematic experience ruined by spare ribs or a child on a tricycle, God, imagine if it had been The Shining. How spooky would that have been? Like one of those 4D presentations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, do let us know. But we're going to talk first of all about Gifted. But I didn't want to go to the stupid school in the first place. And the boy in the next row acts inappropriately for someone who's a child. I'm sorry, I'm still passive-aggressively ignoring you. Other kids answer questions, they don't get into trouble. You didn't get in trouble for answering questions. You yelled at the principal. Oh, you know what? You're going to find this interesting. 
So I googled first graders and yelled at the principal. And statistically, you're never going to believe how many kids do it. How many? None. Yes, Chris Evans there with the prodigious Grace McKenna as Mary in the interesting Gifted, made by Mark Webb out of 500 Days of Summer and Spider-Man. Who's going to talk to us about this? I think I am. All right, what's it about then? Well, I would go straight out the traps and say it's his most impressive film to date. But that's not saying much, I have to say. You didn't like 500 Days of Summer? I'm not a fan of of the Webb um, corpus at this point. But this one is quite impressive, I think. Um, It's about, as you say, a child prodigy, a seven-year-old girl who is being brought up by her uncle, played by Chris Evans, who is kind of very moody and uh, fixes boats in Tampa. And the film essentially then plays out a kind of nature versus nurture there's a dilemma about what's the yeah. best way to ensure the, the, the best life and also realise the potential of, of a math genius like the girl. It's always maths, isn't it? It's always maths, yeah. I mean, uh, she is very well read at the same time mm. and very articulate and has all these kind of, you know, she's, she wants to know what, um, what's the Latin word that she says she wants to know? Ad nauseum. Ad nauseum. She wants yeah. to know what ad nauseum You know what means. that means, don't you, listener? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot not to like in this film. But you really enjoyed it. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's like, it's definitely, from the outset, it's got some major turn-offs. The poster makes it look like kind of very sappy. It looks like the kind of film that would be in the IMDb Top 100 films, which for me is, is a bit of a turn-off. Right. But actually, it's one of those films that I think proves that with a kind of solid script and some good performances mm. and some good character turns you can make these things work quite well, I think. And, right. And, and it, it, yeah, it seems very effective in what it's trying to do. I wouldn't say I really liked it, to quote what you said I thought about it. Right. But uh, I definitely thought it was kind of good film for, for what it was. Okay. I've seen it described as Rain Man Annie, which is perhaps a, a little unfair. Simran, what was your take? I really like this film. I read somebody describe it, actually somebody, the critic Anne Helen Peterson from BuzzFeed, she described it as a Nicholas Sparks film with good performances, which I think is a nice way of thinking about it. Nicholas Sparks? Uh, Nicholas Sparks is the guy who wrote The Notebook and all those kind of sappy novels. Still got nothing. Uh, For anybody who doesn't know who Nicholas Sparks is, he is a sort of sappy, corny romance writer of novels, terrible novels that get made into terrible movies. And so... Terrible, but really successful. Yeah, sure. Uh, Very commercially successful films. I think films that are maybe unfairly maligned because they're thought of as women's pictures and sort of melodramas. And I guess what you were saying before about the sort of saccharine elements of this film might make it a turn-off. But weirdly, it works. It's really sweet. I found it quite moving. Um, I thought the performances are really good. Not so sold on the script. I did feel like a lot of the courtroom scenes. So um, what we didn't really talk about is the fact that a lot of the film kind of takes place in a courtroom as they're battling for the best interests of Mary, Chris Evans, and uh, his mother, who's played by Lindsay Duncan. And in these courtroom scenes, it does get a bit shouty, is a bit a few good men. But um, I don't know. It works. I like Mm. it. I like it a lot. I didn't like this film. I loved it. I really, really liked it. And, you know, it starts with a little bit of down-home guitar and there's a cute little blonde kid who's good. And Chris Evans is a kind of hunky boat repairman who's got secret depths. 
uh, but enjoys a you know a simple bottle of beer in the evening as the sun goes down. And it's just so unashamedly out there, cute. Like there's that scene with the orangest sunset you've ever seen and them discussing God in front of it. And yet it, it all works. I actually did enjoy the script. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I did enjoy the script. But for me, what really sold this, the performances, she's fantastic. Grace McKenna, she's amazing. Chris Evans has got something of that Tom Cruise thing we were talking about last week of being, you know he's corny, but you still can't help but like him. There's something so trustworthy about him that you just, yeah, it's all right. But above all, and this is interesting for a film about a mass prodigy, it was the chemistry that really got me. That It, it just all works. Like him, the teacher, him, the niece, even him and the mother. You know, it all, I just, I really liked it. I thought Lindsay Duncan definitely had a kind of Isabel Huppert thing going on, actually. Do you think, maybe? Kind of like a sort of sexy, steely mum yeah, vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has that sort of unsmiling, kind of, I'm going to kill you look mm. throughout. But one of the things that are, my issues with the film, when sort of thinking back over it after seeing it, is that I think that Mary, the kid played by Grace McKenna, she felt more like a kind of idea than a character. You know, like she was a sort of construct to make this film about the warring pet the war a the, vehicle with which to explore the the dilemma indeed i mean it, but at the time you didn't think that did you yeah i did oh did you were yeah, you watching it whilst, whilst watching it i, oh, I okay. mean certainly by the end of the film she becomes more of a kind of pawn in a sort of wider discussion between the mother who wants to nurture her talent and make her into this you know realized some kind of abstract potential of becoming a famous math genius and chris evans who whose character wants her to be normal because the reason why they're living together is because she's the product of a kind of tragic upbringing. I did have a couple of problems with this film, though, mainly in the supporting characters. Um, Jenny Slate, she sort of plays a, a kind of teacher, and it's, it's kind of sweet because um, her character ends up kind of going on a date with Chris Evans, and they sort of start a relationship. That's not really a spoiler. And uh, as I'm sure many people know, the two actually dated in real life. Did and, they? Yeah, so they met during the film, and then um, they dated for a bit afterwards, and then they broke up. And there was a great profile in New York Magazine of Jenny Slate where she talks about sort of being heartbroken by Chris Evans and how she's still in love with him. It's, it's a really great read. I, I recommend it. So that's quite nice, and their chemistry is quite good. But she's pretty underused there. She's very funny in a lot of other things. She's uh-huh. in Girls... She's in uh, Obvious Child. Um, And then the other sort of main supporting character who we haven't talked about is Octavia Spencer, who is brilliant, but she's kind of playing the same character that she plays in in every single other film that has a predominantly white cast. And, you know, there's some racial stereotyping going on there. It's a bit uncomfortable to watch. She's sort of there to swoop in and save the day without really getting an arc of her own, which seems a bit unfair. Yeah, that went straight over my head. I must Mm. admit, I thought it was reasonably comfortable the way everything fit together but then you know what do I know but all in all what kind of score would you give this Simran um, so I guess for anticipation I'd probably give it a two mm-hmm. I like Chris Evans I like his arms but you know uh, I wasn't too excited about it and then on watching I'd probably give it a four and uh, in retrospect a four as well I, I really like this film a lot David Similar thing, I think two in anticipation the title is, is something that is very very off-putting for me Gifted. I keep thinking of the Lighthouse Family song Lifted whenever I say it, right. which is obviously a very... And then you're disappointed when it's yes, not in any when, way. Exactly. Yeah. When, but I think I'd probably give it threes for the remainders. Right, okay. It didn't quite reach... I mean, I thought it was like 
again in the Mark Webb canon, mm. this is peak Webb. But like, yeah, but you didn't even like Five Hundred Days of Summer. That's so strange. No, I, I really didn't like that. Wow, that's interesting. But again, <laughs> one for a future podcast. I'm going to join you on the the two for anticipation, but I have four very much for me as well. I really enjoyed it. Although I do recognise how this might not be for everyone. Would you say? And it doesn't sound like you were quite as blown away by Young Grace McKenna's performances as I was, but. I mean, she's been great in other things as well. She was in Independence Day 2, but we don't need to talk about that. She's a star in the making if she's not one already, isn't she? I think she's really charming and she's really sweet. And I, what I like about her character in this film is that they just talk to her like she's an adult. And I think that's really funny. Um, it, it makes for a lot of really funny, witty lines because she just quips back like an adult as well. I don't know if that's realistic, mm. but it, it makes a pretty cute viewing. Yeah, for all the schmaltz of the of the storyline, there's plenty of caustic lines in there to keep it with a bit of an edge. One thing that really rubs me out the wrong way in films, actually, this is maybe a lesser example of it, is screen precocity. There was a film I remember seeing called Man on Fire, mm. a Denzel Washington, Tony Scott film, in which Denzel Washington and a young, a young and cloyingly precocious Dakota Fanning go around... She watches while he kills people. It's kind of a sort of Leon setup, right? And, I was just going to uh, say, how did you feel about Natalie Portman in Leon? Speaking of you know precocity, do you know what? It's been such a long time since I've seen Leon, right? I probably couldn't give you a definite answer on that. I don't remember it setting off alarm bells in the same way that that seeing like young Dakota Fanning did, right? I, I, I mean, it set off maybe different alarm bells for a lot of people. I mean, maybe this is again my problem. But I watch a film like Gifted and I see McKenna Grace, and I and I kind of think kind of Drew Barrymore in E.T., right. Macaulay Culkin's another example of these kind of young stars catapulted into the limelight. And then before you know it, they're sort of on the front page of the National Enquirer. Mm. I'm just being silly, of course. No, but do you like, know what? You're not. And that ties in, as it happens, with the theme of this film. And our next film today, how to deal with a precociously gifted youngster. And indeed, next we're going to be talking about Whitney, Can I Be Me? Nick Brumfield's latest this, in collaboration uh, with a German documentary maker called Rudy Dolizar. Well, what this is about is about Whitney Houston and the tragic end of this phenomenal recording artiste. What did you think? A lot of people who have seen this film have said that it's the least Nick Brumfield-y documentary of all the films that he's made. I haven't really seen a lot of his films, so I can't really comment on that. But um, I do think it's worth noting before we kind of get into it, sort of how it's structured and how it's made up. So it's mainly centred around this um, sort of bit of footage from 1999, taken from Whitney's European tour of that year. And that was kind of a tipping point in her musical career when things started to go a bit downhill. And so I think because they've got all this quite good archive footage, good access, lots of backstage interviews as well. That being the backbone of the film is both a strength and a weakness because it means that there's quite a lot to work with. There's a lot of material to work with, but of course it's dated. And also it's kind of focusing by necessity on this particular moment, which doesn't necessarily encapsulate her entire career. And, and that for me was a real problem that I had with it. Right. But it's interesting that it, you say that it's a tipping point because I think it's only a tipping point because like we're told that it's a tipping point and like it's just some footage really and it from a specific time. But I guess 
I think it does sort of manipulate things to try I, and build a, a sort of more compelling story. Yeah, you and, do get the sense that he's created his narrative arc based on the footage that he happens to have got off this German filmmaker as opposed to necessarily coming at it with, there's a great story I'm going to go out and uncover. Well, I guess I'm thinking about it more in a technical sense um, because uh, as a Whitney fan, I really think that um, after she made The Bodyguard... Mm you can really hear in actually the music her voice starting to go because she had started to take more drugs by that point. By 1999, you know, even earlier than that, they sort of mentioned in the film that when she was making the film Waiting to Exhale in 95, she actually overdosed and was hospitalised. So you could see that there was sort of a problem with drugs by that point. So by the time this footage comes around in 99, things are already starting to get quite bad. And, and I think even in the concert footage, you can kind of tell the toll it's taking on her voice mm. and you can kind of see she's really high in, in a lot of the, the footage and in, in quite an obvious and uncomfortable way. So I guess that's kind of what I mean by a tipping point, a, a sort of moment when you can notice her voice kind of becoming damaged. As a Whitney fan, did you enjoy this film? Or did, you, did, you, did it enrich your understanding your, or, or your appreciation of her? Not really. I found it quite disappointing as a Whitney fan. I think maybe if I knew less about her or if I was less invested in her, then maybe I would... Handily, I, I'm not a particular Whitney fan and I don't know much about her and I didn't enjoy it either, so there's that. Uh, David, what did you make of it? I think I'm disappointed as well. Um, I wouldn't say I was a massive Nick Broomfield fan. I mean, he, he definitely has made some great films and some not-so-great films, and I think he's he's the kind of director who would be the first to sort of say that. If I was to go out and look for a, a Nick Broomfield film, which should I go and see? Well, his his early stuff is, is generally well-liked. I mean, he made a, f- a film about Heidi Fleiss, and he made a film about Eileen Vernos, and he, mm. he was actually famously the last person to interview Eileen Vernos before she was given a lethal injection, the, the, the serial killer. You know, he made Kurt and Courtney as well and right. Biggie and Tupac. And those films were all like, I mean, he, he he's very much a kind of tease himself up as an investigator. And he's on the camera and he holds his boom mic and he gets in front of pe- up in people's faces and asks them awkward questions. I mean, he's a director, but he's also a character in the story. Right. And in this film, this is probably the only film of his I've, I can recall seeing where he isn't a character at all. This feels like more of a sort of anonymous kind of gig for hire work than it's more of, that he's than, curating almost this other person's footage did you feel at all uncomfortable with the lack of a right to reply in, in that he doesn't actually have any of his own access to Whitney's parents what well, his witness father's now dead or to Bobby Brown or to Robin her companion and essentially there's various peripheral characters the hairstylist a bodyguard who was fired in 1995 who come up with their theories about what these other people were doing and the and the role they had in Whitney's downfall they're all all this second guessing it's almost this gossiping about what other people did but without any right to reply I found it deeply voyeuristic almost well I mean there's a practical reason for that which is basically that it was the unauthorised documentary and Mm. her estate were not happy about it so he didn't have access to all those people within her team and so you're right there is a kind of a distancing there with the sort of people that are interviewed. And yeah, I think that was one of my problems with it as well, that it was just so speculative and it kind of makes this big thing about Whitney being bisexual and having a relationship with a woman, um, which is not particularly news to anybody who knows a little bit about her life, but it kind of adds a kind of causality to that relationship and it it kind of implicates the fact that she wasn't able to kind of come out about her sexuality Mm. as the reason why she um, eventually died. And uh, there's even a character who says Whitney Houston died of a broken heart, which 
you know, sort of left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth. But yeah, there are some, as you say, some speculative signs. Another person who, who maintains that Whitney changed history and paid the price for it, which is you know, quite a big shout. One of the other things that I kind of thought about this film and one of the things that I found frustrating is that it kind of plays into this narrative that we love to push about pop stars who abuse drugs. Um, you can kind of say the same about Amy and, and particularly Asif Kapadia's film Amy, although I guess that's slightly different because Amy's persona was very tied to this kind of grittiness and like, you know, she sang about drugs and stuff, whereas Whitney didn't. She was kind of this clean-cut princess Mm. and then I think people found it quite shocking when they found these sort of seedy things about her personal life but I do think this film doesn't really do any work to undo that myth and it sort of pushes quite a lazy narrative that already exists yeah no I'd agree with that and lazy I think is absolutely the word I went back and watched Amy after seeing this film and the difference between the amount of thought uh, that's gone into actually kind of unlocking why people do things the way that they do in, in Amy compared to this, I thought was, I mean, it was just, it's, it's on another level, I think, as, as a documentary. I was also pretty mystified as to how Bobby Brown, his assault charge, when he's arrested for assaulting Whitney, how that never made this documentary at all, a film about her, you know, how things go wrong. And Nick Brumfield has said that he didn't want to get into that because he felt that it was a whole different area but I don't understand how he could discuss all the things that he did get people to talk about but not address that. It's because he didn't want to like make the assessment that it was Bobby Brown who ruined Whitney I think he was trying to say that it was other things. It right was but the... it's still quite relevant isn't it the fact that her husband was arrested for assaulting her. Yeah of course I've always kind of thought through you know pop culture that Bobby Brown was this kind of corrupting devil he is solely responsible for Whitney's downfall and yeah, I was I was surprised at how little there is about him. Although, although there's a there's a lot of them together backstage where they actually seem to be genuinely in love. Which you know, to my limited knowledge of, of the whole backstory, I was surprised about. And I isn't actually, that the drugs? <laughs> possibly, possibly so. David, isn't that drugs? Make no, they you love? genuinely seem to have a a connection. Right. Okay. What would you give this in terms of numbers? Would you recommend it then to people, Samara? I think, you know, if you're interested in, in her life, it's it's worth a watch. I don't think it's it's without its merits by any means. Um, but I do think a sort of more comprehensive film about Whitney Houston where you kind of learn more about her, you get more of a sense of her, is The Bodyguard. Um, I know it's a fiction film, but uh, I do think you kind of get more of a sense of who she was, what her star power was, what the context in which she kind of became big in, if you watch that instead. Oh. But yeah, so my ratings... I guess I'd give it a four for anticipation. As a big Whitney fan, I was excited to see it. Probably a a three for enjoyment because it's hard not to be moved by watching one of your favourite pop stars on screen. But in retrospect, probably a two. David? Yeah, I mean, I I think I kind of concur with this idea that I think is a film that like it sort of manipulates all this footage together and has some sort of preconceived ideas of what... Yeah, sorry, you say manipulate. It's interesting because there's certain times when they specifically cut things from different years together as if he's got the actual footage of something that that somebody's describing. But you know it's footage from another time later on. It's Absolutely. deeply disingenuous, that. And I think what it is is there's a thesis, there's an idea that this is the reason why she died and here are the people who are involved and we're going to just put some footage and put some testimony together, smash them together and make it look like we're sort of backing these theories up. Mm. And yeah, that for me just was quite uncomfortable. And uh, I think I'd probably give it a three in anticipation and then twos for the rest. Right. I discovered I like Whitney Houston more than I anticipated. Her music still leaves me cold. And I found the film 
pretty boring in places, actually. Uh, not terribly skillfully edited. I like Nick Broomfield less than I did at the start of the movie. I'd give it probably a three and a two and a two or something like that. But huh, there you go. So, in summary, not one to really go out of your way to see, although her music comes out of it well, she comes out of it well, and pretty much nobody else does. I think that this is a film that Nick Broomfield maybe needed to do to enable him to make some other films that he wanted to make. Right. I think go and see it and see what you think of it because there's going to be another Whitney documentary coming out this year which is being approved by her estate. I think her mum's quite heavily involved so you have to see the two to compare them. All right, well, I'm looking forward to the next one. Simran, of course, you saw this in Sheffield as part of the... What's the name of the festival? Sheffield Docfest. Sheffield Docfest. What other gems should we look out for from that? There are a couple of films that um, I saw in Sheffield that are playing in London soon, but they're sort of on weird limited releases, so it's maybe worth a Google and and kind of looking out for them. Um, But there's two that I'd maybe recommend. One is a film called Stranger in Paradise, which Mm -hmm. is having a very limited run at the ICA. Um, So catch it if you can. It's um, from the Netherlands, and it's all about immigration and kind of immigrants coming from other parts of Europe and the Middle East and Africa and uh, how Europe is dealing with them. But it's a very interesting, weird film. It's kind of a docu-fiction, and it's it's very confrontational. It's, it's definitely worth watching, as, I think, especially as we're all kind of thinking about politics at the moment. Certainly are. What was the other one? The other one is a film called Whose Streets, which Ooh. is about um, the Ferguson protests after Michael Brown was killed in, um, and sort of all the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, it's just really an amazing film it's, it's sort of full of energy it's kind of from the community that it's about um, it's really powerful it's, it's definitely worth watching excellent you David were also there and last time we spoke you were jumping on a train to go and watch Brexitania, or Brexitania. oh yeah yeah how did that turn out for you yeah that was actually a, a really did it nice make you want to leave yes no no yes no um, it was a nice start to the festival I thought it's just a kind of montage sort of quite a lengthy montage of just people giving these monologues about their kind of take on the world Mm. related to Brexit, related to the European Union, related to their political beliefs. So you're just getting these kind of people just talking. There's no edits. It's quite rough, but really kind of beautiful, poetic, shot in black and white. And it's just this kind of mix of uh, ideas and ways people express themselves, ways people interpret politics, ways people connect politics to their own lives. And it's this very kind of humanist film. And um, for an hour, it's great. And then at the end, it has this kind of 20 minutes where they decide to get the quote unquote experts involved Mm. to sort of tell you what you're really meant to think. And it kind of sadly undercuts all the really nice kind of, you know, normal people just talking about their feelings and their lives bit. Yeah, it was it was a, a measured success, I guess. Right. Okay. And apart from that, any other one that you'd pull out from the Sheffield Documentary Festival? Well, there, yeah, there was another one that I loved called uh, with the intriguing title "Rat Film," Ooh. which I think Simran saw as well. Yeah, I, I really like this film, but I'm terrified of rats, right. so it was quite hard to watch in parts. It's about rats, is it? It kind of is in a, in, a, in an abstract way. Again, it's another film that I think is going to come out in London or the UK later in the year, so people will get a chance to watch it. But it's kind of, you'd probably call it an experimental documentary 
where it brings together all these different subjects. Its, its main focus point is the city of Baltimore mm -hmm. and rat infestations. And then it goes on to look at, at, at you know, I think this, the simple question it's trying to ask is looking at how, you know, rat infestations, how they happen, how they're, how they're dealt with. And it kind of delves back into like the history of Baltimore, town planning, racial segregation, poverty, economics. It's, and it's, it just does all these really weird things. Um, it's beautiful visually, or, or not beautiful actually. It's uh, it's striking visually. I, I guess uh, would be a better way to say it. It's just this film that says all these kind of quite strange, divergent things, and then by the end, they're not quite all come together. And the fact that they haven't all quite come together is what makes it really satisfying. Do you feel differently now about rats, Simran? I would still say that I'm deathly terrified of them. Okay. Um, but I I did manage to kind of sort of take my hands away from my eyes towards the end of the film, which I, I think is progress. Yeah, certainly when watching a film it is. All right, well, next up, it's the Little White Lies Film Club talking about With Nail and I. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You are cordially invited to spend a carefree weekend in the English countryside. Bask in the warm sunshine. We've gone on holiday by mistake. Enjoy the rustic pleasure of country living. It's going to be so cold in here. Like Greenland in here. Wants to get down there and have sex with those cows. Partake of fine varietal wine. Oh, drunk. I assure you I'm not, officer. I've only had a few ales. Take lunch at a charming pub. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here and we want them now. Film club time. David, do you remember, this is where we watch a classic film, a film you may have missed, or uh, just a film that needs reappraising. And this week, it's Bruce Robinson's 1987 classic, or is it, with Nail and I. And this is prompted, of course, by one of our favourite listeners, Susie uh, Swaysland, who, you remember last week, said, I've always been pretty mare about this, and whenever I ask someone who bangs on about how good it is, they never give me a satisfactory answer. So can you make it your film club subject? Yes, we have. Lots of people, Susie, I've got to say, have written in saying how utterly fantastic this is. Johnny Carrington watched repeatedly at uni. I saw it as a documentary of student life. Last week I watched it and the pathos just killed me. Especially the Uncle Monty line. Indeed, I often wonder where Norman is now. Probably wintering with his mother in Guildford. A cat, rain, vim under the sink and both bars on. A true British masterpiece, says Johnny Carrington. Matthew Niemk says, one of the best films ever made. So funny I almost died. So sad I almost cried. 
Greg Stedman, it's the saddest, funniest film I know. It is actual magic. Super Kino is so exquisitely perfect and utterly hilarious. I ration watching it to no more than once a year in case the magic wears off, but it never does. There's more wow. I could go on. Richard Cubitt's actually halfway between the two views of the movie. He says, I like it, and I enjoy that kind of comedy largely built around two characters wandering around talking to each other. However, says Richard Cubitt, I can think of many other films that do that just as well, if not better. And he cites the example of 2008's In Bruges. Was it the first of that kind of comedy, asked Richard? Did, was, did it invent a whole new genre? Well, I, th- I think in the, if you look back at the history of comedy, the, mm. the, the male comedy double act... The odd back, couple. It goes back to Laurel and Hardy, really. Yeah. I mean, Martin and Lewis... Um, Bob Hope and Thingy, absolutely Road to Rio and all yeah. that. Right. Maybe this is slightly a different thing, but I'm not sure. I don't feel they're a comedy double act in the, this film. That seems a little kind of generic right. way to... Are you on the side of the people who think it's a work of genius, or are you with the bewildered? Well, I have a weird relationship to this film, because I, I think, I was, as I was sort of telling you earlier, I've seen it many times, mm. and... Um, it's one of those films that if it's ever on you it's very easy to just sit there and watch it through and you know what watched it on dvd and i you know i've had it on like vhs and it's DVD like the great escape basically it is like a kind of yeah you, you it's sort of background film i guess um but i think i, I feel like i've watched it to the point where i can't have a judgment on it anymore really you it's, know it, it, too it, well. It, well it's not that i know it too well that i i just don't know what it is anymore I've looked at it so hard and for so long that it's, it's like saying the word lorry again and again until it loses all yeah, sense. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's what exactly what that is. Simran, you've just seen this film for, I think, the second time. Is that right? It's one of those things where I kind of had a similar view to Susie, really. Mm. I just thought lots of guys that I know really liked it and um, I didn't really understand why. And then I, I watched it as a teenager and I enjoyed it, but I don't think I really thought about it too much but watching it again I really enjoyed it I think it's a hilarious movie it's so funny I think it's that dry humour that I just really like the sort of deadpan delivery really sort of pessimistic quite cruel it kind of reminds me I guess I've never made this connection before, but it uh, sort of reminds me a bit of Peep Show. And I feel like Peep Show is maybe a, wi- a riff on uh, With Nell and I. I don't know if you would agree with that. Yeah, I can see how you yeah. it, how that connection could be there. You you get why people get it. Oh, for sure, yeah. Right. Okay, I really don't. I was really hoping that someone could... could Shall I list my problems with the film? Please. It yeah, might take a while, so, you know, settle in. I do think it's well-written. I don't think it's well-directed. I think it's actually really badly directed. And the comedy that's there within the situations, within the script, is actually really undersold by the directing. There's several scenes, one in particular where they're supposed to kill a chicken, that's just completely killed. There's no comic tension about it because Bruce Robinson just just doesn't edit it, or whoever is doing the editing. How would you have edited it? Well, we'd have to go scene by scene on this, but (laughs) take it from me. I know the one you mean. I I always think that's quite funny where he just says, give it to me, and then it's... (laughs) cuts to the dead chicken right the comedy of that scene is that yeah. you don't see how he kills the chicken or do you want to see how no he kills i don't the want to see how he kills the chicken I, th- I think there had to be a little bit more uh, uh, i mean are we going into tech stuff here? we are a little oh, bit right and okay. to be fair i need to go back and look at it again and then come back with a, a shot by shot of what i would have done but can i just say i didn't think it was well directed and here's actually one of the main things about the direction if you think of the characters of the film one of the characters is 1969 it's the end of an era it's repeatedly cited in the script and that whole notion of what is happening in london and what is happening to society at that point the clash of cultures between their world with nail and his companions world and the tea room 
that they mm-hmm. invade at, at one point. But for me, this film utterly fails to capture any sense of the 60s. It looks like a film that's set in the 1980s with some old cars. And further that, it's not even that many old cars because there are several times when they're driving when you can see modern vehicles in the background. Moreover, when they're driving back from the Lake District... They're driving on the M25 with a big sign saying M25 on it. The M25 wasn't finished for 15 years after this film was set. I'm not being a motorway motorway enthusiast, but it's a really major thing. You look at it and you go, hey, that's a really modern road that you're driving on. That's exactly what I like about it, that it feels like an 80s film. It feels like it's come out of Thatcher's Britain and it's a response to that kind of political climate and it's making a parallel between the end of the 60s and the sort of end of the 80s. Doesn't it strike you as lazy that they couldn't just edit it so you didn't have the sign saying M25? Had he walked in with a Walkman on or something, would you not have thought... (laughs) I mean, an M25 moment aside, I I think, like, you know, making those social parallels is is quite intelligent filmmaking, actually. No, it is. You can make a parallel, that's fine, but if you're going to make a film about 1969, at least make the film properly. Like, point the camera or dress it up so it looks like you've got some kind of... I think you have to remember this this was made on a shoestring. Yeah. I can't imagine they were shooting many takes. No, okay. And they, they, they needed certain shots. And if, if you don't have the money to make it and it turns out badly, I, I completely understand why. But don't expect me to go, this really dropped me into 1969. You, 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 it, it, it's weird that you... I mean, you seem quite intensely angry but I remember, by this. I know, I remember seeing this back in the 80s. I went to see it in the cinema. And as soon as they got in the car, I'm saying, hang on, there's a modern vehicles. And it just broke the suspension of disbelief for me about the film. Okay, but let, let's move on from the M25, because okay. clearly I'm on my own on that. The second thing is the cast. Now, Richard E. Grant and his kind of sixth form insouciant is fine. You know, he, it's quite practiced. It's very mannered. It's not desperately realistic, but he's, he's fine as a comic character. Paul McGann... I thought he was a total disaster in this film. He has two modes, a kind of slightly hysterical manic thing, which he starts the film off in, and then a sort of bland, pleasant, smiley thing, neither of which particularly worked for me. The film, in fact, only comes alive, and it's ironic because when we mentioned with Nell and I last week, you said it's going to be interesting to see how Uncle Monty is after all these years. The gay uncle, how is he going to seem like a very anachronistic treatment? For me, the film only came alive when he was on screen, and the script only came alive when he was delivering it. And he's the only character who really felt real to me in this film. I'd happily watch an entire film with Uncle Monty. I might well consider that a classic. But Paul McGann wandering around, smiling vaguely, and Richard E. Grant just riffing on the the, the kind of cliché character that he's got on the M25 while pretending to be 1969 just doesn't do it for me. I mean, in defence, I think that... Well, I think that Richard E. Grant is really funny. I mean, it's his first ever performance and, you know, famously allergic to alcohol. So, you know, he was feigning uh, being drunk the whole time, mm. which he he does, I think, very well. All the iconic lines in the film are his lines. I Do you think? think? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny because bring, one of our listeners there was citing yeah. Uncle Monty with that. And another one that I loved, he says, let me take you from the legume and transfer your talents to the meat. <laughs> I mean, it was delicious, that whole... That when he arrives at the cottage, the whole thing comes to life for me. Uncle Monty is the ultimate kind of archetypal, right. fruity... And yet he's um, invested with so much character by Richard Griffiths that he does seem real, that I do have an emotional connection with him. I do feel it's worthwhile following him, listening to what he's got to say. But hey, obviously I didn't get this film and, and, and you guys did. I think maybe it's not going for straight realism. I think there's meant to be a kind of winking irony to the whole thing. So mm. perhaps I'm not sure I'd agree that it's fair to levy that charge at it. What? 
that um, that none of the characters have, ring true at all. No, w- what I'm saying is, uh, you've got a character who, as you say, is quite archetypal in, in Uncle Monty, but because he's well played, because there's nuance to him, because he's he delivers the lines with a plomb, he stands out, he acquires life, whereas Paul McGann's doesn't. It just remains to me an actor, now I'm going to do manic, now I'm going to do polite but uncomfortable. Richard E. Grant is fine in this film, and I get why everyone raved about him, especially because, you know, in Thatcher's Britain, that kind of anti-establishment attitude, I think, was even more infectious. But for me, it's not its not a question of the film being realistic or, or not, although obviously I've got an issue with the M25 being used without being duly credited. It's, it's, I mean, I love irony in films. It's just this film, to me, I don't. it just doesn't make me laugh that much. I always think that Richard E. Grant's entire performance is kind of all in service of this last scene. You know, on his own in Regent's Park with a bottle of wine, it's raining, and he's delivering a, mon- a Shakespeare monologue to the wolf enclosure. You know, metaphor there. And... Uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that you think this could and should be awful, end on this kind of very overly maudlin, slightly pretentious note. But, I mean, I think he, it just completely no, slays it. And, like, it only has that impact because you, you've been with this character for so long and, and he's kind of broken it down in that last mm. last moment. Well, I'd, I'd agree with you there. Mm. I'd agree with you there. Um, it's definitely dated. It is. I think politically it's kind of, I think, maybe of its time. You know, it is intended as a time capsule, I guess. You know, but of is, the 80s rather than the 60s. Yeah. And I mean, mm. you do have that line about, you know, the greatest decade known to humanity is almost over and we, we failed to paint it black. I mean, which is, which is by Danny, the, the kind of hippie drug dealer who is also this sort of armchair philosopher at the same time. All his stuff is kind of extraordinary and played by Ralph Brown. Mm. His character is incredible and he, and I think he revived it for Wayne's World, as we'll all remember. Was he in Wayne's World as well? Yeah, yeah. He, oh, uh, okay. Well, that would be a, a future <laughs> film club. I can rant about how unre- unrealistic Wayne's World is. No. Or Bill and Ted's Great Adventure when they go back in time. That would be another no, good that's, one. that's real. That's real. <laughs> that's real. Okay. All right, Simran. Well, this will forever be the one where I got upset about with Nell and I. Just, I think it's because people love it so much and I'm, I'm just sad that I got left behind by that particular ship. Well, I guess you won in the end because, I mean, Bruce Robinson, you know, his career after with Nell sort of, kind of dive-bombed. I mean, mm. he he had that film How to Get Ahead in Advertising, which right. is, I think, quite good. And then it was it was kind of flatline for quite a long time, and then he made a version of The Rum Diary with uh, Johnny Depp, which was, like, not very good. Right. Um, I wonder what we can come up with that will be anything like as controversial for next week's film. Club, what, what are we going to be looking at, David? The film we're looking at next week is Mike Nichols' The Graduate. <gasps> right, which is actually getting a cinematic re-release. Indeed. Wonderful. All right. You can enjoy it at home or in the cinema, but make sure you catch it and let us know what you think. You can do so on Twitter at LWLies, Facebook, the Little White Lies page, or email us at truthandmovies, or one word, at tcolondon.com. That's it then for today. Many thanks for listening. We will be back next week. But in the meantime, many thanks to Simran and to David, and this has been a Seven Digital production. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.